This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. So delighted to have back with us um, Paul Krugman, Nobel laureate, economist, New York Times columnist, City University of New York, distinguished professor of economics, uh, author, editor of nearly 30 books, his latest, Arguing with Zombies, Economics, Politics, and the Fight for a Better Future. Great book to be reading while you're at home at this point. Um, Good to have you back with us, uh, Paul. Um, Welcome back to Bloomberg Radio. So, you know, the president looks like he has hit on another stimulus plan with Congress. And it looks like more money for really small businesses and also money to, you know, help those that have lost their jobs, um, provide them with some income. I'm curious, as you have watched policies unfold from the government, are they the right ones and what's needed to kind of maintain the economy as much as they can right now and help us when we get on the other side? Okay, the, this, this program that just got some additional funding, uh, so far it has not worked particularly well. A lot of the money has gone to businesses that don't need it. But, I, you know, that doesn't worry. That, that's actually in some ways the least bad part of what's happening. Um, the two things that worry me uh, a lot are uh, still we have had no significant relief for state and local governments. Mm-hmm. And those governments have to balance their budgets, and they're on the front lines. And uh, it's going to even in pure economic terms, they're going to be forced into austerity measures that are going to extend this slump long after the virus has let up. Um, and the other thing is unemployment benefits. Um, we have a, on paper, we have a, a really good plan that gives people a lot of, of compensation, but it's being run through state unemployment offices, which have been totally overwhelmed. So the last number I saw was in Florida, uh, you know, only one person in eight who has been approved for unemployment has actually benefits has actually received any money. So, um, so we're falling down enormously on the implementation on the unemployment benefits. So if you take it all together, uh, what we have is, you know, we've had kind of the right ideas in how to deal with this, but we've fallen down enormously. The, the money is just not flowing on a sufficient scale to deal with the, the magnitude of this catastrophe. And Paul, when it comes to execution, it it feels like one of the raging debates. It, it, it seems like we're we're having uh, maybe unwittingly or maybe very wittingly is between the power of the federal government, the responsibility of the federal government, and the responsibility and the role of state and and local governments. How did we get here, and where do you think it goes from here in terms of that breakdown? Well, you know, we have a federal system which does sometimes cause problems. I mean, in, you know, in Britain, there's no question. There's, there's a government, and, and I mean, there are local authorities, but effectively it's, it's centralized. Uh, but um, we have relied way too much uh, on state and local initiative um, um, in situations where they just don't have the resources. So I, I, I've been looking on, on the unemployment front. I've been looking at Canada, which also has a federal system with very strong provinces, but they have an unemployment benefit scheme, which is not too different from ours, except the federal government set up a, a, a portal and a hotline, and people in Canada are getting their emergency unemployment benefits within days, whereas we are still you know, immensely backlogged. Uh, so uh, why, I think it's, it, you, could, you can understand the political history that got us to this point, but this is a point where we really should have a take-charge federal government in terms of, of, of getting that money to the people who need it, and we don't. 
I do want to mention some headlines, um, and I think you might appreciate, Paul, is that uh, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo apparently had a, did a conversation or interview with MSNBC and talked about the conversation he had with President Trump. They talked about testing, but they also, uh, Governor Cuomo saying that the president seemed open to the need for state funding in the next bill. Uh, but, but this is crucial because we've talked about, you know, states, they have to um, balance their budget. Right. So they've got no income coming in that if we don't help out these states, certainly some of these major you know, states, whether it's New York or out on the West Coast. I mean, these are important e- economies to the overall U.S. economy. Well, we've seen this before. Remember, the, uh, after the 2008 financial crisis, um, there was a lot of austerity by state and local governments. Uh, they eliminated about three million jobs over the course of several years there. And that, um, it, that delayed recovery. We would have been uh, probably at full employment by 2013, 2014, if it hadn't been for all those state cutbacks. Now they're facing a catastrophe that makes 2008 look like nothing. I mean, they, you know, states uh, rely, particularly they rely on sales taxes and, and nobody can shop. So um, this is this is and, and when you think about what that means, you know, who who are who are the state and local employees? What are the jobs? Basically, think school teachers. About half of state and local jobs are in the education. So we're about to have a situation where, because of a of a pandemic, we're going to have mass layoffs of school teachers, which is absolutely insane. And uh, but unless we get hundreds of billions of dollars of aid. Uh, headed out for for those lower levels of government soon. Uh, that's going to happen. Well, and Paul, you mentioned this at, at the outset. You know, part of the execution has been that the money may not be going to the right places, and and it calls to mind something I know you've been looking at, and certainly we've been talking about, which is the inequalities that are really being exposed. Many inequalities, candidly, that you've been writing about for years and years by this crisis, you know, you think about the restaurant industry, you think about frontline workers, you think about the fact that folks like us, candidly, we have the ability to do our jobs from home. There are many who don't. What do we need to do? What can we do in the short term to try and alleviate some of that huge structural problem? Well, again, I think the the interesting thing about this one is that this is uh, for once, it's not a problem of low wages. It's a problem of no wages. We're having a problem where people are just losing jobs, and uh, we're probably uh, it's going to be probably 25 million or more jobs at least lost. Um, and we can rush aid now. The the CARES Act, that big that two trillion dollar bill, did uh, not only enhance unemployment benefits but expanded the scope. Uh, which is the right thing to do. The trouble is, as far as I can tell, almost nobody has received those benefits yet. I mean, they expanded it to gig workers, uh, contractors, self-employed, uh, but but the state offices uh, can't even deal with the backlog of conventional unemployment insurance claims. So that's what we what we really need is is we need to be getting income out to lots of people. I will say that that is um, this is a a, a case where. It's not hard to determine who who needs aid. You know, right. Sometimes you, you can worry about if this is administratively complicated. It's not now. It's really a, uh, and particularly since since it's such an emergency. Uh, if a few if a few undeserving people get some money, who cares? Uh, Exa- the important point is is the tens of millions of people who are suffering. Uh, so, uh, but and we we should 
take lessons. I mean, this will, this is not going to be the last crisis we face. I am curious what your perspective is, too. Like, we have a headline crossing. United Airlines said to offer shares uh, $25.95 to twenty six fifty, and they're offering up over 39 million shares. I mean, they're looking to raise money. We get it. What is the balance between helping big companies, as well as small companies, but big companies in particular, who do employ thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of workers uh, around the country, what's, what's the balance between helping them out which is kind of big bailouts, you know, versus helping, you know, individuals. What is, what is the, how do you see it from an economic point of view? What's the balance about what we need to do, or do we need to be all in on all of it? Well, we need to be all in with the caveat that we, we shouldn't be in the business of rescuing um, stockholders particularly. I mean, if this is uh, um, the uh, famous Mitt Romney, corporations are people, my friend. Right. What, he, what he actually meant was that they employ people, and their employees are absolutely, just because someone happens to work for a big company doesn't mean that they're less deserving of help than someone who's uh, working for a small company. Uh, but uh, but we want that to be bailouts that that uh, where the taxpayers uh, aren't, aren't bailing out wealthy individuals who, who are who are in a, you know stockholders. Uh, uh, so look, we the auto bailout under the uh, Obama administration was actually a pretty good bailout. It saved a lot of jobs. Um, the federal government got a large ownership stake, so it wasn't too much a bailout for the stockholders. Um, it wasn't perfect, but if we could do something like that, of course, now we have to deal with uh, with with something that is is maybe twenty times that big. Uh, but it's uh, it, you know, with with a will, with some, if if we had a real full court press from, God, I hate sports metaphors in business. Anyway, <laughs> but if we had a full, a full court a full court press from from uh, from Trump uh, administration officials bringing in lots of people to uh, uh, experts from many fields to to do this, uh, then then we could. Because nothing like that is happening. So what we're having is a kind of. Uh, uh, hand waving. We're throwing a lot of. We're actually throwing a lot of guarantees, um, but leaving it up to banks to make the to decide who gets the money, um, which is is really a dereliction of responsibility. I mean, I there's going to be waste, fraud, and abuse. Right. Uh, you, when you're going to be spending probably in the end five trillion dollars to dr- rescue the economy, there's going to be hundreds of billions of waste, fraud, and abuse. But that's not. But uh, that's a secondary point, but you do want to try and make sure that as much as possible the money goes to the people who really need it. So I want to talk a little bit about experts. You mentioned that uh, just a second ago, Paul. You had a pretty provocative column yesterday uh, in the New York Times. All your columns are provocative. That's why we love talking to you. Um, I mean, this has been pr- a pretty remarkable thing to watch. Your column was called The Right Sends In the Quacks. This has been the big issue over the past few days of when to reopen the economy, who says what, who's leaning on which data. We have a big story in Bloomberg Business Week this week about the data being essentially unreliable in, in many ways or easily uh, manipulated. How do we solve that problem? Well, you have to make uh, educated guesses, but you also have to ask what are the consequences of being wrong in which direction. So, uh, you know, the um, let's talk about one area of the U.S. government that remains extremely competent, uh, which is the Federal Reserve. Uh, the Fed doesn't know what's happening to the economy any better than the rest of us do. They're also grasping at very incomplete numbers. But they've decided that the risks of, of doing too little vastly outweigh the risks of, uh, of, of doing too much. So they're uh, going all out. 
trouble is, I I don't see. I mean, uh, it, it it the the White House team uh, is not exactly people who inspire confidence. I mean, uh, uh, Wilbur Ross told us that this, the virus was going to be good for American jobs. Uh, Larry Kudlow told us that the uh, it was contained and the economic impact was going to be minor. Um, and there's been no change of. The, no one else had been brought on board. It would have been you know, interesting to see uh, have some uh, sort of uh, national unity, uh, save the economy group brought together. But there's been not a hint of that. It's it's it, basically the economic recovery program is being overseen by uh, by people whose it seems to be a fundamental requirement that they have been wrong about everything so far. You know, it's so funny. We talk so much on Bloomberg and I'm sure, you know, about the importance of diversity of thought, right, to come out with the best yeah. programs and conclusions and thoughts about things. And and I don't want to get too political because everybody's going to yell at me on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I do think about that. Right, Paul, you would concede that you do want diversity of thought. You want some conservatives. You want some liberals. You That's want true. people to figure out the best policy here. Oh, I'd be happy to see you know, people called in from uh, American Enterprise Institute, the Cato Institute, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, what's interesting actually is, uh, as far as I can make out, there's this surprising amount of consensus. If you look at the economic recovery plans that are coming out from, uh, American Enterprise Institute, which is fairly conservative and, mm-hmm. and coming out from, uh, the Center for American Progress, which is, which is very liberal, um, they don't look that different. Right. But they do look extremely different from what Trump is doing. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm all for uh, so, diversity. So, uh, so what, what's the risk here? We've only got about, I think, a minute or so left here. Um, what's the risk by not really having the best people working on this for us? What, what do you see as the, the risk here? Got about a minute left. Two risks. Two risks. One is that we loosen up prematurely and we have a whole second wave. And I'm now terrified that that's going to happen. Uh, and the other risk is that because we don't provide enough aid, we leave... And lots of people, businesses, individuals, states, local governments would cripple the balance sheets, which means that we we never get a full recovery, or it, it takes years and years. So that the, the hangover, the the convalescence from this thing goes on and on, and that's both of those are are, are really serious risks right now. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. Uh, a somber note, but a realistic one. As always, we really, really value our time with you and really deeply Terrific. appreciate it. Paul Krugman is Distinguished Professor of Economics at the City University of New York. Also, of course, a New York Times columnist and author. We are delighted to spend some time with him. And I was madly, and I could see you too, Carol, like scribbling down oh, notes my... of uh, interesting <laughs> things. Uh, I'm planning says. to include this in our weekend, kiddo. This is why he's a Nobel laureate, folks. <laughs> This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We want to turn our attention now to our minds, our mental health. No one better to talk about it than Richard Pearson. He is the co-founder and the CEO of Headspace. You know the app. You know people who use it. I use it. Carol, do you use it? Do I have it. It's on, app, full yeah. disclosure. It's on my phone. Use it. On my phone as well. Uh, Rich joins us. Rich joins us from Santa Monica, California. Great to have you with us. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. All right. So let's take stock here uh, if we can. This is a really tough time for people. What do you make of it and what should we be thinking about most prominently when we think about taking care of our, our mental health uh, at a time of such upheaval? Yeah, well, I think the first thing is that um, 
I think that this situation has brought to the surface a lot of the mental health issues that I think were maybe sitting under the surface that maybe were unaddressed. And I think when you are forced into a situation where you, it's much harder to, you know, partake in all the normal distractions that we that we that we kind of do as human beings, I think it brings these things and makes them kind of more acute. And so I think for the first time in a long time, we are actually looking at the state of our mind. And, you know, for some of us, it's incredibly challenging. Um, so I think, the, you know, things that we're hearing from folks is a few things. I think, one, I'm not sure that mental health was uh, a topic that was being discussed in every single boardroom. Um, I think it's being discussed in every single boardroom now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're definitely seeing, um, you know, and we've seen that we've had like up to 400% increase in terms of uh, enterprise inquiries for our kind of b2b offering so we're definitely seeing um, an increase there um we i think the other piece that's come you know that comes to us is a lot around parenting and kids at home i think people are really struggling with how do they balance uh, work life and and kind of raising children at home is a really really tricky thing for folks and they're like two big things that are definitely coming towards us as we're seeing this crisis unfold totally agree. I feel like it's another one of those situations where we know this stuff's out there and yet it's not until we have a crisis do people like, wow, yes. this is a problem. One thing I want to get to, Rich, I have a sister who's worked in the mental health profession for years and has just talked yeah. about how it's taken even the medical community and even like health insurance a long time to respect that mental health and, and a healthy mental health is as important as, a, you know, your physical and medical well-being. Um, yes. Are we seeing that change significantly will something like COVID-19 help even move the needle on that one even more yeah I absolutely think it's accelerated our kind of belief that we've had that you know we've always believed that mental health is the kind of um you know is inextricably linked from physical health and I think even if you look at all the research Mm -hmm. around stress-related chronic diseases that you cannot separate out the two it's it really is kind of whole person health not just physical health so I think we're definitely going to see an acceleration towards people understanding that looking after the health of your mind, we believe is actually the most precious resource. Um, and we think of it as your hard drive. You know, if, if your mind is not healthy, how can you actually make healthy choices, the things that you eat, the exercise you take, the relationships that you have, how you sleep? It really is the core component of living a, a healthy and balanced life. Um, and I think it's been able to be pushed to the on the back burner and some people have been open to it and obviously some people are way out in front when I think of certain organizations and healthcare systems but I think this crisis has made it top of everyone's agenda um, because everyone's dealing with it in real time right. um, so I, I absolutely believe that this is going to shift the whole conversation and this next wave of um, of kind of looking for ways that we can support people with their mental health because we cannot train enough doctors you know you mentioned your sister we cannot train enough people yeah um at one-on-one like we're going to have to think of scalable ways that we can we can solve these issues as that's where out. i think platforms like so yeah, like, like well, yours the, are, are like play right to that yeah exactly i mean you gave yeah. us a, a perfect bridge to to talk about headspace i mean when you th- think about folks who who were ahead of it and, and out there i mean you and andy founded this uh andy puttycomb whose uh voice has been in my head many many <laughs> many many times uh founded this 
in 2010. You were out ahead of yeah. this. What have you learned, especially that you're applying now uh, over those years, over those 10 years or so, uh, that, that might be useful to, to folks listening right now? Yeah, I think one of the things is, you know, where to, for folks to ask themselves the question of, you know, where do they prioritize their mental health? Like, what do they actually do for their mind? Mm. Um, you know, we spend a lot of time looking after our physical appearance and other things in life, but how much time do we actually spend looking after our most precious resource? I think that's an interesting question for all of us to ask. Um, and then, you know, I, I would be I would be biased, but I do think that, um, you know, a mindfulness practice, however you apply that, whether that's with a seated meditation practice, whether that's applying it to the way that you run, whether that's applying it to the way that you eat, um, I think there's so many different ways that you can apply mindfulness in your life. And the biggest benefit of that is it gives you a different relationship with your thoughts and your emotions. And if we think about stress, most of our stress is caused by our thoughts and our emotions. And it's not to say that thoughts and emotions are necessarily bad, but if we can practice a, a technique like meditation or mindfulness, we can actually create some distance between those thoughts and those emotions and therefore not get so swept up in them as, as they, they occur. And I think that that process is um, is the, one of the most valuable things that you can do for your ongoing mental health. And to not to look at it as I think so many people think about it, right, I get really, really stressed, and then I do a little exercise and I won't feel so stressed, more like an aspirin. Um, but if we can actually think about it as, as a kind of a vitamin or vitamin, as, as you say in America, um, <laughs> that we can get to prevention, you know. Um, yeah. You could think about doing this. Right. You know, if you go to the gym once, you're not going to get fit. <laughs> Our guest at this hour is Rich Pearson, co-founder and chief executive officer of Headspace, joining us on the phone from Santa Monica. You know, it's funny. I can't even tell you, Rich, the conversation that was going with our team here at Bloomberg Business Week, our tech technical staff, our producer staff were like, are you on this app? Are you on this app? There's a lot of apps out there. And I think that alone can be stressful and overwhelming about like kind of yeah. figuring how do you create a meditation practice you know, that's calming and you don't feel overwhelmed. Like, I got to do this. I got to do this. What would you suggest to somebody who's feeling stressed out? How should they approach it? Yeah, I think the worst thing that can happen to anyone trying to build a meditation practice is it to feel like another thing on your to-do list that you never get to. Right. Which I think for a lot of people, it kind of feels like that. <laughs> and so I, I really think like with any habit, you should start off little and often. Um, and I think even if you just commit to a few times a week, as little as three minutes, and build up from there. You know, I always think it's like the good analogy is like the, a marathon. If you've never run before, you wouldn't go and run a marathon like as your first running experience. And I think you've got to think about that in the same way with meditation. Um, I think another really good tip is to um, to attach it to a habit that you already have. So maybe you want to do it just before you go to bed, or maybe you want to do it after you have your morning coffee, or before you have your shower. But trying to attach it to a habit that you already have because it's much easier to kind of couple it um, in, in that way. And also just not to put too much pressure on yourself. I think the real, the big misconception, and this is probably the biggest thing that I could say to anyone, is that meditation is not about stopping your thoughts um, and it's not about having a calm and relaxed um, kind of benefit from it. That may be a side effect of the practice, but I think so many people go in with that expectation. Um, but I promise you, if we could have learned how to stop our thoughts, we'd have done it by ourselves a long time ago. Right. And so it really is a process of having a different relationship with your thoughts. It's not about stopping them. And because people have those pre, 
um, perceptions about what it is. When that doesn't happen, they give up and they say it's stressful and it doesn't work. Um, right. So that would be the biggest thing that I could say to anyone. It's not about stopping thought and it's not about feeling relaxed and calm. That may happen, but that's not what you should go into it with. And so, Rich, you know, one of the interesting things that's happened of late, and maybe it's in part because of the crisis, as Carol pointed out earlier in the conversation, uh, and maybe it's part of the work that you and others have been doing, and I, I believe that to be true, the idea of meditation has come much deeper uh, into the mainstream, and it feels like it has allowed you guys as a business, ultimately we are Bloomberg here, uh, to really yeah. expand some partnerships and maybe uh, set up some relationships with people who otherwise, I mean, talking about governments and, and other folks who maybe 10 or 15 years ago would be like, okay, thanks a lot, weirdos, but we got this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, tell us about some of the, some of the stuff you're doing. Yeah, well, people always responded to us like that um, in the early days, I can assure you. They definitely thought we were strange when we talked about this idea. But, yeah, that's definitely shifted. Um, I think the fact that, you know, Governor Kiomo rang us up, that Michigan rang us up, um, and I think the reason that, that that happened and we partnered with New York and, and Michigan and we've got some more coming down the pipeline as well, some other uh, big partnerships with government, um, is because of the science and the efficacy of it. Um, you know, we've been, we're the only um, mental health, um, digital mental health product out there with uh, the volume of research. We have over 65 papers um, currently in process, 20 of which have been published, proving that Headspace can reduce aggression, increase compassion, reduce stress, increase focus, reduce job burnout, you know, in, in, um, in, in kind of approved journals. And I think that when you work with government, or you work with Starbucks or GE or Hyatt or any of these large enterprises, which we do, the efficacy in the science is really important. Yeah. One thing saying, oh, this is an interesting thing that I should do anecdotally, and people tell people about it, which is great. But actually, when you can see the empirical evidence and you can see that it actually changes the structure of your brain and it actually reduces the things that cause us chronic health conditions, I think that really changes the way people look at it. And I think that's been a big part of the, the journey of, of, of this kind of project. And I have to say what I really love, I was doing some research, and I think it was somebody out of Harvard, but just saying what's, what's great, too, is people are doing more, you know, and larger studies about this so that you do understand the connection between mind and body uh, and staying yeah. healthy on all different levels. And I'm glad to see that there's more respect for that. Um, I just have to mention you did, you know, Sesame Street you're working with. You're working with the National Health yeah. Service in the U.K. You're working with the New yeah. York, um, as you said, Governor Cuomo. You're working with Michigan. I mean, it's really great. Just tell us, since the virus, you know, you know, just all the people that maybe are reaching out to you and, and, and what your expectation is that once we get on the other side of this virus, you know, the impact for your world, what might be the lasting yeah. impact? Yeah, I think one, I want to say a massive thank you to our incredible Headspace team that have been pulling off these partnerships in like real time and they've been working weekends and nights to try and keep up with demand and, you know, without them, none of this would be possible. That's the first thing I want to say. I think the, the second thing is, you know, and it's what we talked about at the top of the, the program is that I really think this has accelerated the mental health conversation to put it at the top of every single person's agenda, whether you're in government, whether you're in healthcare, whether you're in schools, whether you're, you know, whether you're at home and you're talking to about it with your partner or your kids. I really think this has brought the conversation to the mainstream. 
and this will be a durable story. Like, I really think that people are going to put this in the same way that they think about their physical health, because I, th- yeah. I think it's made people realize that they are inextricably linked. And I think that is going to change the world forever uh, in, in terms of kind of mental health. No, I think that's a, it's exactly right. And it's, it's interesting. In just a few minutes, we're going to talk to the CEO of Planet Fitness. And, you know, one of the things Carol and I have talked a lot about before is once you discover this sort of thing about yourself and, and this practice, as it were, you don't really want to go back. The, 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 you can't unknow it. You can't unsee it. And I think it's a really uh, important conversation. And, and I know we're going to keep having it. And we really appreciate love it, uh, love all it, the love work it. you're doing. Rich Pearson is the co-founder and the CEO of Headspace. Joining us on the phone from Santa Monica, California, some really remarkable work that they're doing. And as I said, you know, the mainstreaming of this, it's a really important moment. And we look, and when we look back, Carol, I think at this moment in time, yeah. uh, this could be a, a really catalytic uh, moment uh, in the history of understanding health from a much more holistic perspective. Love it, love it.